Welcome to the Live Longer World podcast where we have conversations with scientists, entrepreneurs, investors and other advocates transforming the field of aging and longevity science. We bring you information on how you can be disease free, reverse aging and maximize longevity now and in the future. I am Astha Jain, the host of the Live Longer World podcast. Besides this podcast, I also create other content on longevity science. I write a newsletter and have a YouTube where I distill the basics of longevity science and discuss how to maximize health span and incorporate longevity practices into your lifestyle. You can find these resources on my website. head over to livelongerworld.com you can also follow me on twitter at livelongerworld instagram at longevityfuture and support my work through patreon which is simply patreon.com/livelongerworld all these links and resources are also included in the show notes with that let's get started with today's episode My guest today is Dr. John Eber, who is a professor of neuroscience and genetics at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. Dr. Eber was fascinated from a young age by how a single cell forms the entire human body following an innate genetic program, and he got excited by how knowledge of this process might be used to improve our biological fates and defeat aging. He is a molecular geneticist by training and obtained his PhD from the University of California San Francisco before specializing in the study of how neural stem cells form the brain at Stanford University. His lab is now developing ways to use cell and tissue replacements to repair and rejuvenate the brain. More specifically, the Eber lab is engineering tissue that increase, increasingly resembles normal neocortex which is the part of our brain that forms our highest cognitive functions and testing the ability of this tissue to integrate with the host brain dr eber is also the author of the book replacing aging in this conversation we had an extremely interesting discussion ranging from why dr eber thinks the other methods to fight aging may not work if the goal is to beat aging. We also discuss 3D organs and tissue cell replacement and we talk about the neocortex and what it takes to replace one and lastly we also discuss how plasticity in the brain works. Even if you're not associated with the field of longevity, I think you'll find this conversation interesting and very refreshing. radical to say the least all right with that here is the conversation for you hello professor erber thank you so much uh, for joining me today and welcome to the live longer world podcast it's such a pleasure to have you here thank you for having me it's a it's a great uh, honor to be on your podcast i appreciate the opportunity absolutely so 
Well, the reason I'm excited to talk to you is because you have a very radical way of approaching how we can fix aging. And uh, just to set the foundation for the listeners, your approach is around replacement of each of the components of the body, including the brain, which we will go into, as a way of entirely curing aging. And of course, I'll let you chat more about it. Um, but I think a good place to start would be how you actually came to this conclusion that this might be perhaps the most effective way to cure aging. And I know, especially in your book, Replacing Aging, which everyone should read, um, you talk about why some of the other approaches, such as, for example, just clearing away senescent cells or fixing mitochondrial dysfunction, they are great, but they're not going to entirely cure aging. So it would be great if you could talk about why some of those approaches, in, in your opinion, um, are at best just going to maybe slow aging. Yeah, great. I, I love the way you asked the question, that it's you know a radical approach. And I have to say, I'm, I'm somewhat conservative by nature. And, and so to me, this, I see how it comes across as a radical approach because it involves surgery as opposed to just taking a pill. But it's not so radical when you consider um, all the scientific evidence that we have uh, for what aging is. Um, and that's where I think the other approaches, although maybe very useful in making us healthy or uh, fighting certain age-related diseases, will, will be much less effective, or, or I would argue not effective against uh, reversing aging itself. And the reason I say that is because it's been pretty well documented all the different forms of damage that occurs to the molecules that make up our body. So those are proteins, DNA, uh, carbohydrates, and fats. And they all accumulate damage with time. And these forms of damage um, are known, at least for the DNA and protein damage, are known to cause you know, the other hallmarks of aging that, that people are focused on, which I think are downstream of the real problem, which is this accumulation of damage. And the tricky part is that this damage occurs not just to the cells that make up our body, but to the environment that the cells are in. And that's perhaps the most neglected area of longevity research. Um, because much of the focus is on the cells and not the ex extracellular environment that they live in. And our bodies are largely made of that extracellular environment. Yes, you know, all our tissues have cells, but all those cells are, are, are you know, nested in this, this extracellular space, sort of connective tissue, but it's very functional tissue and it's very different from organ to organ. Um, and it accumulates a lot of damage over time that is not addressed by metabolic approaches because those remain in the cell, uh, not addressed by, you know, pretty much all the approaches uh, that are very popular right now. Uh, even epigenetics, you know, uh, 
Epigenetics is great. Cell reprogramming is great. It, it has a lot of uses. It can be used for regenerative purposes, but it can't be used for reversing age-related damage because cells respond to their environment. And if that, if they're already in an environment with all the extracellular matrix they have, they will not produce more. And even if they did, they would just be adding more protein to the damage that's there. And that wouldn't be very functional. Um, so, so this extracellular damage is particularly um, problematic with the approaches that are currently getting much of the attention. And the cellular damage itself is also somewhat problematic. I mean, there, there are some uh, longevity researchers who would argue that within the cell, the DNA damage itself uh, is in many cases irreversible because of the loss of information content uh, due to mutations in the DNA. Uh, and that that accumulation of damage over time uh, is also a, a big driver of aging. I think it's one of the drivers of aging. I think all forms of damage to all our classes of these macromolecules, the proteins, DNA, fats and carbohydrates are all going to be on their own sufficient to bring us to a, a decline with time and, and uh, inevitable demise. Um, but unless, of course, we reverse them. So these forms of damage that occurs to these classes of, of macromolecules are stochastic and, and complex. And so Imagining ways of reversing each one of them with an enzyme or a drug uh, without causing worse side effects than you know, contributing benefits is very difficult because there's hundreds of forms of damage and even the best drugs we've developed today have side effects. So I can't imagine taking you know, huge combinations of drugs and thinking we're going to be better off than, than we were before. So really, uh, I've come to the conclusion, and I guess we'll talk about this more as well, is, is to really beat aging, we have to replace tissues uh, or organs or body parts, but you know, not just cells, uh, you know, not just target specific pathways, but replace entire tissues. So, I see, yeah. okay. No, that was actually very helpful in explaining. So I hear two main points. One you're saying is that a lot of these approaches to even reversing the damage is mostly restricted to reversing damage within cells. And there is this extracellular matrix around, which is the environment around the cells that accumulates all this damage. And it sounds like not a lot of people are focused on that. Um, and that is also something that's, that, that, that we have to fix. And then I think point number two was that even if we have all these combinations of approaches, which was actually gonna be one of my questions that, you know, what if I try to fix damage in all the different tissues, then I mean, in theory, maybe I take like 50 pills, sure, but if I could fix all the damage in all the different parts, then why could that not work? And uh, you're saying that Maybe it could work, but it's just going to be extremely complex because obviously biology is interrelated. You don't know what effect 
one pill would happen something else how do you fix the damage in yeah. each of the different yeah, no, it, exactly it's it's that complexity that i think and i maybe i was too optimistic i i really don't think it can work <laughs> and, and the reason the reason is the complexity of the damage but the drugs or or some of these are covalent modifications so some drugs can act to break covalent bonds but you know again those are usually very toxic drugs because they cannot recognize the difference between a covalent bond that serves a purpose in a protein versus one that happened stochastically due to damage uh, in a protein or, or any other molecule. So these, you know, uh, these reactive drugs uh, tend to be very toxic. Uh, and so now you would want ones that are smart enough, and drugs are not smart, they can't compute anything. They're small molecules typically um, you would want them to just target the bad covalent bonds and not the good ones. And I, that's just not imaginable. Uh, enzymes are a little bit better at specificity. So they're much bigger molecules and they can, uh, you can have uh, them target specific forms of damage. And there are groups that are trying to do this and there may be benefits that they're able to obtain uh, but again, they're going to be limited because even enzymes are not that smart. Even if they can recognize like a, a, a form of glycation uh, to a certain protein that's bad, they might be able to recognize to some extent that it's bad. But then, you know, glycation occurs to proteins under all different contexts, all different proteins. So it's going to look different in many cases. And it also there's forms of glycation that are good and that cells use for, for important purposes. And those have to be left alone and not touched. So even the enzymes, it's gonna be very difficult to, um, you know, to, to, to come up with a battery of enzymes that are effective that way. So I'm rather pessimistic about these approaches as far as really reversing aging and beating aging. Um, so that you know you can make a an old person really like a twenty year old or you know again, um, but again that's not to say that there won't be some benefits from drugs and, and um, other forms of biological uh, therapeutics like uh, enzymes or or you know there there are other forms as well. Um, so I think they're worth pursuing, but we need to recognize their limitations. And if our goal is really to beat aging and reverse aging, then again, I think you know, the, the most straightforward way to go about this is tissue replacements. Right, and I think that's a very important distinction to make that, as you say, if we really wanna beat aging, then uh, your approach might be one of the best ways to go about it, maybe as of now. But because, I mean, some of the other approaches, they could be effective. Maybe we end up living to be 150, 200, at least not having diseases when we're older, but then we're just essentially pushing the timeline uh, as to when those diseases will eventually catch up. And how long can you keep pushing that timeline is, is I think, where, where, where your yeah. argument holds. Yeah, yeah, uh, 150, 200 is pretty optimistic. I mean, 
you know, we all know 90-year-olds and yeah. 100-year-olds, and we know what they look like and how fragile they are. So yeah. and they could be disease-free for their age. They'll be disease-free. So and and the decline is not necessarily linear at that point. You know, it may maybe a little accelerate. So I think 150 is um, you know unrealistically optimistic. <laughs> in a few years, I, I think we'll get with, there. With just treating diseases, we're just eliminating right. diseases. So, yeah. yeah. All right. So I, I think let's uh, dive into what uh, research you are doing around uh, tissue replacement and then also discussing the brain because I think that's probably the more complex part. But we can just start with the, the basics uh, on, on what you're, how you're approaching beating aging. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I wanted to sort of, because it's a neglected area in the field of aging, um, but it's not neglected in regenerative medicine. I mean, you know, people are fabricating body parts, growing organs in the lab. So this is a very active uh, area of research and development, but there's very little overlap with the longevity field. And I thought this is ridiculous. You know, this is really what I think is going to work for aging. And so we need to be talking about it. So I wrote a book about it. And the funnest part of writing the book was finding out just how much has been done in body part replacements in humans. Um, I didn't realize. But essentially, every part of the human body except the brain, and, and we'll get to that later, uh, has been replaced in, in humans surgically. Mm. So the implementation is possible. So, and when I say every part of the body, it really is every part of the body, like face, uh, you know, scalp, uh, nose, you know, you know, hands, wow. limbs, flank, ribs. I mean, every internal organ, you know, it, it uh, sexual organs. Uh, everything's been transplanted successfully in humans. But in most cases, they've relied on um, transplants from deceased individuals, right? Uh, organ donors, um, which is, you know, and those are very, very precious because um, those transplants are used to uh, treat people with fatal critical diseases uh, to save their lives. So. Um, that's what they should be used for. So they can't be used for just reversing aging. Um, and, and in some cases, it's due to, you know, terrible disfigurements or, or uh, loss of body parts. Transplants will be used uh, in those cases as well. Again, uh, there, you know, there's a greater need uh, for those individuals than there is for somebody who wants to be 20 again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm all for that, of course. Uh, but yeah, but you know, we need to prioritize. So what we need uh, is the development of lab-grown organs and or prosthetic body part replacements. And both of those uh, developments are, are being made that are pretty astounding. Um, there have been some organs that have been grown in the lab that have been transplanted in humans and have been functioning for uh, you know over a decade. Uh, the bladder is one example, but it's not the only one. Um, there are others as well, uh, and, and so that that's very promising. And every other uh, internal organ, for sure, is in preclinical development. 
so I think it's inevitable that uh, soon enough we'll be able to replace our essential organs with uh, transplantable ones. Um, there are different ways of growing in the lab. There are different approaches being used. Um, for example, some people are making um, pigs uh, um, that can grow human organs, for example. Uh, hmm. So there's all sorts of approaches that people are using. Um, and, and there's no reason why they won't succeed. They just have to work out the immune compatibility in that case, or uh, for the lab-grown ones. Um, one of the biggest uh, challenges is the vascularization to scale those organs to get bigger, but, but progress is being made there too. So I think it's inevitable. Um, so those are biological replacements, but there's also prosthetic replacements. Uh, we know the heart is an obvious example. People have been uh, living with artificial hearts sometimes for over a decade. Um, so, you know, it, it's, there's already that, you know, that's already a good example. There was just recently um, at UCSF, uh, University of California, San Francisco, a group that developed an artificial kidney. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, kidneys are in great demand for, uh, diseases, but, you know, can also be used for uh, uh, rejuvenation purposes, especially if they're, you know, uh, artificial, they can be mass produced. And, and, um, so, you know, that's another example. Um, and, and there are, um, of course, for limbs, prosthetic limbs, there's, you know, prosthetic hearing devices, there's prosthetic vision, um, devices or artificial eyes or retinas uh, that, that have shown um, functionality. So all these things eventually will lead to the ability in the not too distant future to replace all body parts uh, functionally so that we can, um, you know, when we're getting old, uh, we, you know, we, we don't have to suffer because our heart is weak or our kidneys are failing, we can get high-performing young ones again. Same with our limbs and basically everybody. That's quite exciting uh, that every, as you mentioned, every body part can be replaced. I mean, obviously from a regenerative medicine perspective right now, but also from, from like, I, I, it's nice to know that if I start getting old then one of my organs fail, that whoop, can probably just swap it out. And, and of course, um, it's one of the reasons is because it's possible to now make some of these artificial or lab grown organs as well. So I think that could definitely accelerate the field. Um, all right, so where does the complication lie then? It sounds like the brain. Yes. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, so what is, because uh, you, you focus on the neocortex, but I guess just more of a high level overview, how would um, replacement in the brain work? And maybe actually before that, um, a question I had was, do we know what aging in the brain looks like really? And um, is it very distinct from aging in the body? Like would you categorize aging in the brain also as damage accumulation or is there something else fundamentally going on? Yes, uh, it's definitely damage accumulation and it starts occurring very early in life. Uh, the reason that there's sort of this misconception that, you know, we can have highly functioning brains, even though our bodies are very old and fragile, 
is because of the way the brain works. Uh, mm. there's, there's a certain level of plasticity that's uh, inherent to how the brain works. And so that plasticity will compensate to a large extent for this accumulation of damage and for the loss of complexity of the neuronal connections that occur. Uh, so if you look at old brain cells, the neurons in the brain, they look very different than young brain cells. Um, they're, they're much less complex in their projections and connections and, and informing the, the circuits. But, but the nature of how they work is still very plastic. Uh, so that, that is what sort of masks, uh, in some people's minds, the aging of the brain. But if you look, uh, anatomically uh, or even physically at the brain over time. So in the mice, in mice, it's very easy to do this because they have a shorter lifespan. You can look at, at their brains over the course of two years. Already by four months, which is considered young adult still in a mouse, there is a, um, a an obvious physical difference in the ability to light, of light to penetrate the, the tissue. If you remove the skull and you use like two-photon imaging, which is this you know, very fancy way of looking deep into the brain, already by four months, it's harder to do that than at two months. Uh, and that's because of the accumulation of protein aggregates and damage. So, you know, aging happens in the brain, I think just as fast as anywhere else, except it's maybe not as noticeable until very late when, you know, plasticity can no longer compensate for the deterioration of, of the circuits that are there. So when this, you say, so when you say plasticity, you mean that other, the functioning areas of the brain are compensating for the damaged ones or the non-functioning ones. Is that why we don't really recognize aging in the brain? Yeah, I mean, the damage is sort of widespread. Uh, you know, it occurs sort of everywhere in the brain. And so what, what plasticity allows in older individuals, and you can see this by doing functional MRIs of older individuals, is they use broader and broader areas of their neocortex. That's the part of the brain that we use to think. It defines who we are as individuals, our self-identity. They use broader and broader areas of, of the neocortex for what they need for their routine tasks every day. Uh, that may include you know, language uh, and, and other motor skills and functions. So they may appear you know, to be functioning normally and they are within their now more restricted behavioral uh, you know, confines. So there's only, there's a lot less they can do uh, but they may still be able to do it just as well as a young person. They're just using broader areas of the neocortex. If you look at a young adult brain, everything is very compartmentalized, very used very efficiently for different functions. In the elderly brain, that's not the case. It's more diffuse, more widespread. Again, because the substrate has deteriorated, the, the neural substrate has deteriorated. So plasticity is just doing what it needs to do. If if the person, you know, uses a certain function every day, that's what plasticity will expand and encode in the rest of the brain. Um, so that's a really, this concept of plasticity and 
uh, use dependent allocation of neural substrate uh, is really important in thinking about you know, tissue replacement to rejuvenate the brain as well. And I, I, you know, we can talk more about that as well. Yeah, no, I absolutely want to dive into that. So I guess what you're saying is that over time progressively, that even though, I mean, an older person, uh, they might be functioning the same way, their brains might be functioning the same way, it's just less efficient. And then over time, as you age, even that efficiency in some ways declines, or you're just, the bandwidth of your brain basically dwindles, um, and which is why you start to notice loss of memory or loss of different functions in the brain. Yeah, the efficiency in terms of encoding a wider range of functions declines, yeah. Efficiency for any particular function can appear or can remain uh, the same as a young person because now you know more of the brain is devoted to that function. So you don't really see a difference compared to a young person. I um, see, overall, okay. Overall, yeah, you're, you're less efficient. Okay, that, that is very interesting. Uh, before we dive into tissue replacement, you mentioned aging in the brain starts very early. Um, what is very early in humans? I mean, so, you know, there's obviously less, um, we have less of an ability to look inside the human brain. Like I, I, right. I uh, gave an example earlier with, uh, you know, looking at two photon microscopy. As far as I know, that's never been used on human brains. Uh, so we, we would be left with uh, post-mortem tissue that can be analyzed. And I'm actually, you know, I'm not that familiar with uh, these uh, careful analyses of, of brain tissue over time. So previously, um, you know, biochemists have looked at damage. Again, I don't know how often they've looked in humans compared to uh, other shorter-lived animals, but they've looked at, you know, damage over time to all different organs. Um, it, and seeing that, that you know there is this accumulation of damage, uh, but for the human brain, yeah, I, I don't know, but certainly uh, some forms of damage start accumulating, um, maybe even before you're born. Uh, so because some proteins, um, like elastin, is you know the, the canonical example. Uh, doesn't turn over for a whole lifetime. So when we're growing as an embryo and a fetus and a child, um, though the elastin that's produced stays there for life. And that elastin, as soon as it's made, linearly starts to accumulate damage over time. Uh, certain forms of damage like racemization is very linear. It's a, it's a physical change in the amino acid Confirmation, um, you know, the, the, over time, and it, it, you know, it's independent of biology. Uh, it's just a physical form of, of degradation, and that that occurs starts occurring right away. So um, then there are many other forms of damage that occur to elastin uh, breaks um, over time, aggregation, glycation, different forms of oxidation. And elastin is, is an important example because it's in every part of our body, including our brain. So we're not just, you know, the brain is not excluded 
from, from accumulating damage from a very young age. Uh, elastin is in all our blood vessel walls and it takes its name from being elastic, at least when it's young, but it loses that elasticity as we get old. So our blood vessels lose their elasticity and are no longer able to meet the uh, changing demands of tissues. So I, I don't know if you know how functional MRIs work, but it's basically looking at the function of your brain in live, you know, as it happens. And it, it one of the ways it does that is, is measuring uh, the, uh, the flow of, of glucose or you know, blood. A and you can detect differences based on how much um, circulation is going on in different parts of your brain as you're thinking about different things. And, and so that, that's due to the plasticity of the blood vessels. So they meet, blood vessels are, are always you know, dilating and, and, and restricting based upon the needs of the tissue. And with age, we can't do that anymore. And, and so that causes all sorts of secondary functional deficits in those tissues, including the brain again. So, so we can be pretty confident that you know, the molecular damage that accumulates throughout the body also to, in some forms accumulates in the brain from a very young age. Oh dear, that's certainly not what I wanted to hear. So I was, I was but, curious, but I was again, like, well, am I already accumulating damage? So it sounds like yes. Yeah, um, yeah, but thank goodness for plasticity and our ability to compensate. So what's important to you and you keep using and thinking about, you can actually improve upon even when you're old because of plasticity. So not, not all is lost. I see. That is good to know. And, and also hopefully, well, your work will, uh, saves us, right? So uh, let's talk about tissue replacement in the brain then. Yeah, yeah. So tissue replacement, obviously, has to be done progressively. You know, you can't like other organs of the body. You can replace wholesale, um, and, and it's fine. You can replace your your heart, you know, your lungs, your kidneys, anything, and it's still you. Uh, your brain, you can't do that. You know, your brain is you, uh, and, and so um, the only way to replace it is progressively over time. Uh, but because of this plasticity. And that functions, if you're using them, uh, and they're important to you, functions and memories uh, will move from one part of the neocortex or one part of the brain to another uh, over time. So mm -hmm. it, because of that, uh, the nature of, of how the brain works, this plastic nature of how the brain works, that means that we could replace tissue progressively over time without losing who we are um, as individuals, without losing our self-identity, without losing our memories, uh, or, or you know, our ability to perform any tasks that we like to perform. Um, so you know, that, that should be possible in principle. And, and uh, it should also be possible in, in practice, because we know how the brain normally develops uh, from precursor cells, so we have a pretty good understanding. Um, and, and at least we understand that the, the precursor cells know what to do 
and how they do it, even though we don't have, you know, the finest detail understanding of the, all the molecules and genetic pathways that control that. But we know that they can do it, and we know that, that these cells, uh, how they do, how these early brain precursor cells form brain tissue. And that's essentially uh, what my lab and others are working on, is how to get these very immature brain precursor cells to form entire new tissue. Um, and so the, the, the difficulty comes from the fact that there are many brain cell types that we need to generate to form a functional tissue. There are broad classes of excitatory neurons and inhibitory neurons. And then there are uh, multiple support cell types, um, different types of uh, glia, which are referred to as support cell types. Although my friends who work with glia uh, don't like to think of them as support cell types because they do more <laughs> than that. They actually participate in, you know, in circuit function, neurotransmission um, of electrical processes. So, so they're actually uh, very important for that. So it's sort, of a, it's sort of wrong to just refer to them as support cells, but for simplicity, I'm gonna to refer to them as support cells. So, um, so there's different classes of those. Um, and then of course, there's also the vasculature that uh, as I mentioned, it's uh, obviously very important for any tissue of the, of the body for it to remain young. So all those cell types form a tissue. Um, and, and the trick for us, even though we know all the precursor cells that give rise to those final cell types, what we have to work out is the ratios of those precursors that we have to mix together. Um, and they're their relative maturity states, because those cells are very immature precursors that are always dividing initially, and then they differentiate and give rise to neurons or these other cell types, and they no longer divide. And so we have to figure out you know, what initial ratio of precursors we need to mix to get the final ratio of cell types that makes a truly functional brain tissue. And we also have to organize them um, spatially. So these cell types are not just, you know, all mixed together, but in the neocortex, for example, they're arranged, at least the principal neurons are arranged in layers. And so we have to have our tissue develop in such a way that those layers form as much as possible mimicking how they form normally when we're fetuses and, and newborn, uh, you know, early, early in life, um, so that they wire correctly. So that's our challenge uh, to get that to work. But, but there's no reason we can't. I mean, we've already had early success in my lab um, and others have also shown that the neural precursors do remarkably well in the adult environment. So they'll project very long distances to normal targets um, and wire up correctly. So this is hugely encouraging. Um, and what we've done as well is put in young vascular cells and show that they'll form vessels that fuse with the host, uh, host vasculature and, 
and you know circulate blood through the tissue that we're that we're making. So so this is all encouraging, but we're not there yet. But I think you know again, it's a matter of time before we come up with the right uh, ratios of cells and arrangement of cells to get a tissue that is fully functional, uh, and at which point. Um, we can introduce it into the aging brain. And then there's a whole other side to replacement. So it's not just putting in young tissue, but we have to remove the old tissue as well. And that will probably be easier because we already know, nature's already provided us with <clears throat> examples of, of how that, that happens by just progressively <clears throat> killing tissue for example, in the language center, we know what rate the tissue needs to be killed at in order for language to be preserved by moving somewhere else. Um, but we, of course, wouldn't do it um, the way nature has shown us because you know the examples come from disease cases like the slow growth of a benign tumor. Uh, we can do it experimentally. Uh, even with light-induced silencing of neurons. So very precisely over time control the rate of silencing of brain tissue, uh, allowing the function to be preserved by moving to a new, a new substrate. So that, that, uh, at that point, you know, that, that tissue is no longer useful to the individual because it's silenced, it no longer houses any uh, functions or memories, so it can be uh, removed. So that's the second part of the equation. So we have to make the tissue, which I think is the harder part, and then the silencing and removing of the old tissue um, is, is the second part. And the two hand-in-hand -hand, uh, done progressively, I think over the course of, we estimate, you know, 20 to 30 years is enough time for plasticity to move all the functions from old tissue to young tissue. Uh, we could have, you know, the brain of a 20 to 30-year-old uh, again and not worry about it for another, you know, 50 years. So mm -hmm. that's, that, that's what we plan on doing to really beat aging, including for the brain. Right. No, that is, that's actually extremely interesting. So you're saying we first use these precursor cells to create new tissue for the brain and then use these uh, then and then replace the old tissue with the new tissue and all done in a progressive way. My question is in the second part, when you are, say you can come up with these precursor cells and make the new tissue, which I know you said is the harder part, but say we, in a few years we get there. Um, when one use, once you start replacing the old tissue with the new tissue, especially because it's gonna be done in a progressive way, how will the interaction between the two work? Well, so again, this is, this is all based on plasticity. So as the old tissue is being silenced, and as long as you're using uh, those functions or recalling those memories, uh, they will move to uh, a new part of the brain, right? So- Sorry, but that you would only, in theory, be able to recall them if there is still some functional element of the old tissue? Or are you saying that a yeah, tissue so that's, that's still sort of working, I mean, it's obviously not in the best 
condition, let's call it. Uh, but then it, it has some memories attached to it and then you can just uh, move those to the new tissues once they are in your brain. Yeah, so, you know, we have billions and billions of neurons in the brain and memories and functions are encoded by, you know, minimally tens of, of thousands, but probably hundreds of thousands of neurons in each case. And, and those memories and functions are relatively fault tolerant, meaning you could remove a few neurons or add a few neurons and, you know, you can still recall the memory, you know, you can still use that function. Uh, and so what you're doing with this progressive silencing of a brain area, and you do like one area at a time where you know what the functions are, as long as that silencing is progressive and you're using those functions or recalling those memories, they will get uh, re-encoded more robustly elsewhere without you losing them. So, you know, there's this really nice example I alluded to earlier with language. So, you know, language is something very important to us um, and very, uh, very complex. Um, and yet, we know from examples uh, in the literature that even though the original language centers progressively destroyed over the course of around five years from a slow-growing benign glioma, the individuals never lost the ability to speak because you know they, they speak every day and that function therefore moves to a new part of the neocortex without anybody noticing any difference in their use of words or their ability to speak. Um, and so, you know, that we, we plan on using the same approach of progressive silencing. So, you know, that brain tumor started off as just, you know, one cell gone rogue and starting to divide and eventually ate away at the, the whole language center to the point where after they removed the tumor, there's a big hole there, but the individuals can still speak. Um, so, so plasticity is, you know, the basis for why this works, as well as, you know, memories are not encoded by single cells or neurons. They're, they're uh, probably fairly large networks. I see. Okay. That, that makes a lot more sense. That's, that is very interesting. Um, and then I guess once these new neurons um, or tissues are uh, inserted, you're saying plus you said something about plasticity taking about twenty to thirty years. Uh, does that mean does that mean for it to start degenerating again? What was that timeline? Oh no, I I meant twenty to thirty years to replace all tissues of the brain. I see. Because because we do little areas, you know, scattered little areas at once, you know, maybe. Um, we do, you know, 10, 15% of the brain at once that we slowly silence within the presence of new tissue. Uh, and we have to do this a few times to finally have replacement of, of the, all the tissue in the brain. So that's the 20 to 30 years. But at that point, you know, you will have the brain of a 20 to 30 year old. Um, and, and so you'll be, okay for another 50 years if you want. You know. 
Mm -hmm. So then uh, what, what, what do you think would be a good age to start this replacement, progressive replacement program? Uh, I hope to start it when I'm 70. Mm -hmm. um, you know, ideally with replacing other body parts as well, right. because, uh, especially recovery from surgery as we get older gets harder and harder. Yeah. Uh, but if at the same time we're becoming younger and younger, then you know we can recover better and better from the surgery. Um, so yeah, I, I, to be honest with you, I could probably use more tissue right now because you know, <laughs> I, I feel I'm like forgetting things or, you know, I, uh, but I, I can wait a little too. <laughs> Plasticity, that's the, that's the answer. <laughs> yeah. More efficiency if you're born. So yeah. what, are, um, what are some of the biggest challenges in this that you see? Um, I guess there's challenges at different levels. I mean, there's the engineering challenge of making this tissue functional. Mm -hmm. uh, the surgery as well is, is not something that's going to be easy. Uh, surgery never is. I mean, brain surgeons do brain surgeries all the time. They're super good at it. Um, they remove tissue that's epileptic, for example. So again, to them, this is not a big deal, but um, you know, if you're gonna have, if you're gonna need to do like um, six rounds of the surgery, you want to be sure that whoever's doing it is very uh, skilled. And so I think at some point, you know, uh, having uh, smart robotic, um, you know, um, surgeons, but also that, you know, can, can sort of bioprint the tissue in, in place, which is what we're doing now, except we don't use a bioprinter. You know, my, my PhD student does it by hand, sort of layers the cells in to get you know, the right cytoarchitecture, the right layering of the neurons. But, you know, that, that, that might be something that needs to be more streamlined to be applied more broadly in patients and humans. Uh, so first, engineering the tissue, I think, uh, will have its challenges, but also the surgical implementation. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, I think for the brain, it's a pretty, I, I think we can get, you know, I don't think there'll be political roadblocks so much um, because we're, we're gonna, you know, our first clinical indication would be something like stroke. And, it, you know, when you have a stroke, you, you lose the functions that are there because there's no time for plasticity to move them to another part of the brain. Right. So that's a stroke is a catastrophic event. So it's a little different than aging in that sense. Um, but but our tissue that we put in is is immature. So it's the equivalent of a one year old tissue. Um, and so that should allow because you know one year olds, two year olds can learn language without any effort. So there is like it's like plasticity on steroids. It's like this blank slate just waiting to take on function. Mm -hmm. And so putting that in the brain of a stroke patient where they've lost tissue due to stroke, I think will give them um, 
you know, this wonderful ability to relearn lost functions, whether that's language or mobility and the contralateral side of their body. Uh, so that will be our first clinical indication. And there's really nothing that can be done for these patients as is. So as long as we can demonstrate safety, which other groups are doing for other reasons with, with brain transplants, I think we can implement that in the clinic. Um, and then if we see benefits from that, then there are other forms of sort of accelerated degeneration or dementia that are also untreatable. Um, and, and, you know, I think arguments, strong argument, arguments can be made for why patients would need this tissue. Um, and so I think we can progressively move from, you know, something like stroke to uh, forms of dementia uh, to aging, because, you know, the difference between dementia and aging, it becomes a fine line, right? Uh, and so I think, I think that, you know, the roadmap to getting there for the brain is, is pretty clear. You know, then I think what the whole longevity field faces in terms of complete rejuvenation for the whole body and the brain, there might be more of a challenge there, um, you know, to, to, to get this sort of generally accepted. Although mm -hmm. I think all it will take is, you know, somebody to do it on their own and then everybody's gonna to wanna to do it, right, if it works. So I don't know. I don't know how challenging that'll be, but that could be a challenge uh, to get it to that point um, where we can actually do it and it is sort of accepted as right. something we can all do, yeah. Because at that point, I can see there being, um, you know, some pushback or controversy around, you know, you're so functional and healthy, why do you need this? But then I think, as you said, if we do start with people who have brain disorders or stroke or dementia, I think it could be a very solid pathway to get there that if it, if it works uh, yeah. for them and you start seeing um, your brain just declining in function with age, why not, why not prevent it early? So yeah. I, I, I'm sure there's promise, yeah. And if, if I could add just one thing maybe too is that you know, I think, I, I believe fundamentally that everybody should have equal access to the best healthcare that's out there, as well mm -hmm. as the best education that's out there. Um, and clearly we don't have that now, and that's a problem already. So, you know, there's a lot of inequity in access to healthcare as is today. Um, and a lot of us, you know, vote against that or, or in some are much more active in fighting that, but it's, it's you know, it's very difficult. I, I worry that, and I, I think we, we should consider how to go about, you know, uh, getting around this problem for uh, age reversal as well, because I think that if anything could, you know, exaggerate the, the differences uh, between those who have access to these treatments and those who don't. And so I think we should really take steps uh, early on to, 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 to minimize that inequity and, and to try to give access to these rejuvenation therapies to everyone. And you know, what I'm talking about, these types of replacements, are of course, a lot more expensive than taking drugs. 
Um, but but they are also they also save money because you know if you're really avoiding the chronic diseases of old age, which are mm -hmm. hugely expensive, you can easily pay for these replacement therapies. Um, so you know it, it just will take the the social and political will to to get that to that point. Yeah. But hopefully we we do. Uh, yeah. I think I, I think that's a great point, but uh, I I agree with you. I mean, these problems will come up. Hopefully, we're going to solve them in a in an optimistic and rational way. Uh, at least I'm optimistic about it. Um, yeah. I, I think one um, other question on just your research um, I had was so you're saying in theory, if I do this whole body replacement and also progressive replacement of the brain. Um, I could have the brain of a 20 or 30 year old when I'm much older and also retain my memory and other functions that I've learned in the previous 80 years, 90 years, whatever it is. Um, so that means, I mean, that could be really exciting because then I can essentially, I have learned from my past uh, previous 80 years, I have all this experience, but I can also go out there and learn a tons of other new things, start different careers. Basically, there's nothing stopping us at that point from learning as much as we can because we should have that capacity again, right? Yes, well, we will always have the capacity to learn new things. Um, that again, that's the nature of the brain. There's a trade-off, though. I mean, this plasticity—if you know, if there are things, functions you never use, you do forget them. And that, you know, mm -hmm. that's how, how it works, right? And that, that's happening to all of us now. We're, right. we're forgetting things, not just because we're getting old, but because we're not using them. Um, and, and so, yes, you can learn new things to a certain extent because at some point you'll start, you know, forgetting other things as well. So, but you, you'll have the choice, you know, you want to learn new things, you, know, you can learn new things. You'll have a more efficient brand then. Uh, well, the younger one, yeah, you'll be yes. able to learn much more than uh, the older brain, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right, that's great. Um, I think um, two last questions I want to leave you with. I mean, why sure. do you think there aren't other people uh, working on this approach? Because, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are more people uh, I'm not too familiar with, but then it just seems like a lot more people are working on uh, developing jobs uh, as opposed to the approach you're taking. Yeah, well, there's, I mean, there's a lot of motivations for drugs. I mean, the pipelines are there, you know, the profits, uh, you know, you stand to profit a lot more, a lot quicker from that. Um, you can get, uh, they're more readily, you can get insured much more easily for that. So companies have more incentive to develop them because they'll get their money back. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why drugs are attractive um, but in terms of, of uh, tissue replacements, um, I think we're slowly moving towards that for diseases in general, um, because you can provide a cure as opposed to having to take medication forever uh, and not really solving the problem. Um, so, so tissue or organ replacements have the potential to provide a cure. And there are many labs working on these developing organs, lab-grown organs and tissues uh, for the purpose of treating either damage or disease. 
Um, and, and so progress is being made. Uh, there are far fewer for the brain. Again, there, again, there are many labs doing uh, transplants of cells in the brain, but in a way of, to get a functional tissue, there aren't very many at all. Um, you know, I, I think we're one of the only labs and I wish there were hundreds of other labs, but the reason is it's, it's a big project and it's not easily funded by typical funding agencies like the NIH in the US or you know, uh, other typical funding agencies in other countries. Because it's such a big project, because it's such long-term, um, you know, we're collaborating with over a dozen other, other labs to get the right cell types to, you know, to be able to build this tissue. So it's a very big project um, with a lot of moving parts. And so I think most scientists uh, in my area of brain regeneration are, are not in a position to, uh, to undertake such a big project. Right. Uh, so no, yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, it's, it is a bold project, but you've at least convinced me that it's an extremely important one and one that could, could actually uh, really cure aging and, and beat it. So yeah. I hope others have been convinced too. Um, yeah, there are some out there. Yeah. Right, right. And then I think progressively, hopefully more so in that direction. So I guess um, for anyone who will be watching this or listening to this, um, is there something that you're seeking help on that potentially someone could reach out and help you? Um, yeah. Yeah, well, we're looking for highly specialized personnel and we will be uh, more and more. So, you know, somebody with tissue engineering experience, um, working with human stem cell, uh, especially the patient derived, you know, induced pluripotent stem cells. Um, so we have protocols for making all the brain cell types that we want, but you know they, they would need to be optimized for clinical, um, to be better used in the clinic. Um, so we need computational biologists, we need um, systems neuroscientists that are capable of analyzing large data sets of neuronal activity and making sense of how different brain parts are communicating with each other. Uh, we need electrophysiologists. Um, so yeah, um, and we need you know people working with uh, different animal models, not just rodents, but also you know humans, primates. Um, so it's a huge endeavor. Yep. All right. So great. Whoever's been convinced by a by a theory, go work with Professor Eber. It's going to certainly help us carry aging. Um, lastly, I guess, is there anything else that you wanted to touch upon that maybe we haven't covered? I think we covered the, pretty much everything. Um, so um, thank you very much for, for having me. I, I had uh, very good questions. I like your, the order of the questions because it really helped me build the case. <laughs> so I appreciate that. You made it easy for me. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you very much. I, I, I really enjoy this conversation. As I said, I've definitely, definitely been more convinced by your approach. So uh, thank you for doing all the work you're doing and uh, thanks for your time today. Yeah, thank you. All right, thank you so much.
If you enjoyed today's episode and learned from it, it would mean a lot if you could show some support and share the podcast with your friends and family. I'd love to spread the science behind aging and longevity to as many people as possible, such that we can all benefit from it and live healthier lives. Additionally, if you enjoy learning about science-backed health optimization, you can check out my newsletter, livelongerworld.substack.com and my YouTube, which is Live Longer World. You can also support my work by donating on Patreon. I'd like to keep bringing high-quality information to you and your support certainly helps. Lastly, if you wish to follow me on social media, I am on Twitter at LiveLongerWorld. I also have an Instagram at LongevityFuture where I often post graphics distilling concepts in longevity science or talking about longevity lifestyle hacks. And that's it for now. Stay in good health and catch you next time. Thank you.